Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe farm-raised salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. A maitre d' makes enemies with the wrong person at his bar. Turns out the guy that I tried to cut off was part of the uh, Gotti crime family. And he, on no uncertain terms, came up to me and said, I don't know who you are, but you disrespected me. And I want to take care of you for that. 
A diner finds herself licking foam out of a ceramic mouth. And it was put down, and they said, this is the chef's kiss. And that chef publishes a manifesto on fine dining, which inexplicably has... Three pictures of men on horses. That's coming up later in the hour, along with more tales of the ridiculous, surprising, and secret things that happen in restaurants. So to start the show, let's go back to the beginning, to the birth of dining as we know it. Right now, I'm joined by Rebecca Spang, a professor of history at Indiana University. Her book is The Invention of the Restaurant. Rebecca, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So the story we've all been told about restaurants in Paris is the revolution, you know, 1789. There are all these chefs who worked at Versailles or worked at at some of these great houses. Uh, They had nowhere to go, so they decided to open restaurants, and that was the birth of the French restaurant. Um, You say otherwise, that that's actually not a true story. I do say otherwise. When I started to do the research for my book, The Invention of the Restaurant, that was the story I thought I was going to tell. But the thing about doing historical research is you need to keep an open mind. You always need to know what came before the thing you think you're researching. And I happened to discover that there were people opening establishments called restaurateurs' rooms as early as the 1760s. So that didn't square with this story that had been handed down really for 200 years about the French Revolution and the birth of the restaurant. So restaurants that were started in the 1760s are based on the concept of serving restorative food, I guess. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So long before a restaurant is a place to eat, it's a thing to eat. Um, Starting really in the 16th century, you can find recipes for restoratives. um, And the, the things that are most likely to be called restoratives are in other places called, and I love this, waterless soups. So basically, it's the idea of sweating quite a bit of meat over very high heat. So Hmm. it yields the juices. So really, the first restaurateurs are basically the great, 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 great forefathers of the bone broth craze. So describe the restaurant. I mean, these are communal tables? What are they? No, that's the crucial difference, right? So an innkeeper or a tavern is going to have a table with 12 seats. All the food goes on at once. The restaurants, they have individualized tables. They uh, were decorated with various accoutrements um, that one wouldn't have found in an ordinary tavern. Um, So the mirrors that we associate with French restaurants, but also things that sort of connected to the quasi-scientific claims being made by these restaurateurs. So thermometers and barometers on the walls as well. I guess the the thing I don't get is this. The 1790s economically are a disaster, right? Trade collapses after the revolution. So there's this transition from serving consomme to the beginnings of what we consider now a French restaurant. Right. How does that happen? Because it seems to me the place serving consomme has very little in common with the place that we understand as a French restaurant. Right. So the key thing that they have in common is the style of service. So the content of the menu completely changes, but you still have individualized tables. You still can order your meal 
within a time frame of what's considered dinner time. You don't all have to be there at once and sit down at a shared communal table. And there's a printed menu. So we could say that the technology of the printed menu is infinitely adaptable. It could have three restoratives on it, or it could have 25 entrees. And what's going to happen during the revolution is that the cultural prestige associated with being delicate, with being somebody who needed to be restored, well, those are marked as particularly feminine qualities and particularly aristocratic qualities. And the revolution is all about making Republican French men. So restoration is out hearty meals are in. And you're quite right to say that the economic collapse of France in the later 1790s meant that very, very, very few people had the the wealth to access these new restaurants that exist in the aftermath of the French Revolution. But that's how the transition happens. We haven't really talked about the food. We talked about the consomme or the simple soup or the restorative. But once that went by the by, what kind of food was being served at restaurants in the late 18th century in Paris? Well, a stereotypical Paris restaurant meal of, say, the early 19th century would likely start with oysters, dozens of them, and then pretty much anything that you think of as a classic of French cuisine. So veal kidney, you know, there'd be some fish, Um, There might be a roast, not much in the way of vegetables, not much in the way of salads, quite a few wines to order from, and various sweets for dessert. And so when did you get the Grand Vaufour, you know, the famous restaurant in the Palais Royale, that kind of place? Was that more like 1820s by the time that really elegant, very high-end restaurant showed up? Well, so the Grand Vaufour, that space had been a cafe from the 1780s. And it becomes the Café Vefour in the early 1790s. But certainly there's been a cafe slash restaurant in that space for mm, 230 years now. I, you know, I've been there. It's quite opulent. Yeah. And as you say, lots of mirrors. So yes. Very which, which I think um, also is grist for my claim that restaurants are about individuals, right? So you can see yourself in the restaurant. And also, of course, what the mirrors allow you to do is to surreptitiously watch everybody else. You write, um, the restaurant gave new significance to the individual's emotions, utterances, and actions and elaborated a whole new logic of sociability and conviviality. That sounds philosophical. <laughs> so, so what do you mean by that? Right. So what I mean is that there are institutions that exist in modern life that we take for granted, and we don't think about the ways that they are sort of structuring our behaviors. So if you can think back all the way to before when there were cell phones— And how weird it would have been to see people walking down the street talking about their lives. Like, why why are you having this very private conversation in public? And yet we do it all the time now. 
So the technology of the cell phone has changed how we think about what's a public space and what's private. So when I say that about restaurants, what I mean is the idea that a restaurant is a place where you go in and you sit down at your own table and you order your own meal. And you're not necessarily, in fact, quite rarely talking to the other people in the restaurant. So it created this new sort of space, a public space to go be private. And that was really a very new thing in the 1780s. Well, I'm not going back for bullion. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely post-revolution. Okay. So. All right. Rebecca, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure indeed. Thank you again. That was Rebecca Spang, author of The Invention of the Restaurant. Now it's time to answer some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. And as you may know, she used to be a chef at La Tulipe. So, Sarah, you must have had, over the years, a number of interesting experiences there. Was there something that really stood out? Oh, well, there's plenty. But one of our specialties was fish en papillote. So it was fish that was cooked, you know, it's essentially fish in a bag. It was a beautiful piece of pristine, I think it was red snapper, you know, that had been skinned. And we had all these special poached vegetables that we would put on top and then some butter and some wine and you'd fold it perfectly. And little secret, we blew air into it. Because then when you went to bake it, it puffed up even more along with the air, whatever germs we put in there. There were no germs. We cooked it at such a high temperature. But at any rate, it was supposed to be served tableside. So the waiter would have to rush it out, this bag that was all puffed up, take it to the table and carve it tableside and serve it. At any rate, one evening, the waiter came back panicking, and he said, the guest is eating the parchment. <laughs> <laughs> so we all had a conference, and we decided it won't kill the guest. Let them eat the parchment, and that's what we did. And did he or she finish the parchment? I don't remember. You'd think I'd would, remembered that. Would, but... Was the guest eating by him or herself or with No, no, people? we didn't want to embarrass them. I oh. think they were like at a foretop or something. But, yeah, that was a very difficult moment, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, now we should take a call. Okay, time for calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, this is Stephen Fernandez. I'm calling from Charleston, West Virginia. Hi, Stephen. How can we help you today? I had a question about an ingredient. I participate in a uh, local mac and cheese contest every year run by one of our local speech therapists. Oh, And okay. um, I'm kind of known for being the weird mac and cheese guy. So I end up always buying different ingredients. Eventually, I kind of scale them down and uh, determine what I really want to do, which led me to picking up a jar of squid ink, and uh, I was trying to figure out what I could do with it. And well, first of all, we all know that when you add squid ink to a recipe, and it's usually something starchy, which makes a lot of sense, it turns mm -hmm. it a dark color, a black, really. Mm -hmm. Right. which isn't terrible at all, but just it's a different color. Mm -hmm. It's a different look. You know, right. a lot of people think it's fishy tasting. It's really not. It's more of a sort of a nice, salty, briny addition. And when you're going to okay. add something salty and briny to a dish, it helps that the dish is somewhat bland. So that's mm -hmm. why it made sense to add it to your mac and cheese. Did you, by the way? No, I ended up doing like a confit tomato brie sauce 
with uh, chicken skins. Brie sauce with chicken skins? <laughs> yeah. Did you crisp them up? Oh, yes. Yeah. They oh, were kind of like a like a dusting. Well, like I approve of that. I approve of that whole thing. Uh, how did it? Did you win? <laughs> you. Uh, unfortunately, no, not this year. Well, you should have. Well, anyway, just anything. So pasta, risotto, rice, you know, mm-hmm. any ravioli, any of those kind of things uh, would benefit from a, a little bit of squid ink because it would bring that nice okay. counterbalance. I don't know. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's you make pasta, obviously. Risotto would make sense, as you said, paella or other rice dishes. Yeah, sure. that's all, paella. You could just put it into mayonnaise or something just for the heck of it. Oh, um, you know, spread on a sandwich or something or aioli or something, mm-hmm. fish sandwich. I mean, that would be good if you had a fried fish sandwich and had a black aioli with it. Is this a little tiny jar of this? Or do you have yeah, a Yeah, it was a little tiny jar. Oh, yeah. I think the mac and cheese would be good for Halloween, though. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I might do that. Some yellow cheddar, <laughs> yeah. orange and black. Yeah. There you go. You sound yeah, like a, a very adventurous cook, Stephen. I try to be. I guess I haven't lived because I haven't done the crisp chicken skins oh, ground what, up. What and, a brilliant idea. Yeah. That's oh, brilliant. Yeah. Hey, you should have won. We're <laughs> yeah. all for you. Good oh, luck for next you. year. I appreciate it. All right. Thank Take care. You. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Mary. I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. How can we help you? I was listening to one of your discussions on a previous broadcast, and it was talking about getting a good rise on breads and muffins. And I'm a relatively new bread baker. I was doing fairly good, but then I could not get a good rise. And in that broadcast, you, I believe, mentioned a cold house. Right. And I think that describes me perfectly because we tend to have a house that's 65. So what I was doing is I was using the proofing setting on my oven. And I'm still not getting a good rise whatsoever. So I was struggling along until I heard your broadcast where you started talking about a proofing mat. What is better, using proofing in the oven or the proofing mat? I would try the proofing mat. And you just put the bowl, any kind of bowl, on top of it. And it works really well. I would not trust a proofing setting on an oven because it's going to go up and down. In any thermostat, it's either on or off. So when it gets below a certain level, it'll turn on. Then it will get hotter than the desired level and turn off, right? That's how it works. Okay. There's also, for more money, a big box. It's a white plastic box, and it disassembles. And you can put like two bowls in there. And that really okay. works well, but it's a couple hundred bucks. I think the mat is well under $100. That works well okay. in my experience. Sarah? Dough will rise with yeast in it, even in the, in the refrigerator. It's going to rise. It's just going to yeah. take a little longer. The thing about a slow rise is you develop more flavor. So maybe it's oh. just a matter of waiting longer till it looks right. I've got another question about the mat. And since you do use it, Do you put like a little blanket around it so that the entire container stays warm? Like a tea cozy? (laughs) Have a bread cozy? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Hey, you just invented something. That's a good idea. Um, (laughs) You know what I did? I did put a kitchen towel over it. But what's going to happen is the bowl is going to slowly get a little warm and it's just going to take the chill off. And as Sarah said, she's right. It's just a question of time. But you may not want to sit there for six or eight hours. Exactly. I want to thank you guys because 
we drive around the countryside just so that we focus on just listening to you guys. So wow, um, you helped us make our day here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and we've discovered dirt roads we didn't even know we had. Let me tell you. Well, lovely. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Mary. Well, thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you guys. Take care. Take care. So, I appreciate it. Bye bye. Bye bye. This is Most Year Radio. If you have a kitchen question, just give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Jay. How can we help you? Over the years, I have been trying to find this answer. When I was a kid, my grandma made these rubber cookies. And forever, I've been trying to get the recipe. I finally found the recipe from... My mom gave the uh, cookbook to my sister, and she found the recipe, but it entails ammonia carbonate, and you can't find that anymore. So I'm wondering how we can go around that or how I can get around that. Yeah, when I was uh, researching a project I did with Fannie Farmer recipes a long time ago, about Mm -hmm. 1850, baking soda and baking powder came out. But before that, there were other leaveners. Yeast actually was the original leavener. Ammonium carbonate or hartshorn was used, often used in cookies. I don't know what a rubber cookie is, but usually you get a very crispy, light texture when you use this particular leavener. So you have no trouble using baking powder or baking soda, but I believe in the research I did that ammonium carbonate or hartshorn did give you a very particular style of texture. Now you're going to tell me rubber cookies were dense and hard, but (laughs) what's a rubber cookie? Toll House and Keebler has nothing on these uh, German cookies. They're like chewy. And the huh. thing is, is that, that ammonia you can't get anymore, and they had to go to the pharmacy to get that, even in the 80s. The texture's chewy. It's not very light and crispy, right? Very chewy. Here, here's the thing. Yeah. You boil water and sugar for a minute, and then uh, you add three cups of flour with an egg, and then you put that powdered ammonia in, and then you beat it really well. And then um, you set in a cool place for overnight. And then in the morning or overnight, uh, you roll thin on a floured board and you use like the old uh, cookie cutters, you know, and then you bake in a hot oven, but you don't want to brown them. And then the trick is, is that it says to ripen in a tin. And I remember them huh. putting them in bread tins, Right. but it, it, there's nothing like it. You can't get ammonium carbonate now. Is that the nope. problem? Okay. You can't get that anymore. And, and I'm just trying to think what would be the closest... Well, Chris, can can I interrupt for half a second? Sure. I believe it's also known as baker's ammonia, and I know I've seen that online. You You can find it in some Middle Eastern, you know, specialty (laughs) shops. Good. Oh, maybe there. Yeah, yeah. Because it sounds like it's worthwhile. It really does. I think modern leaveners are different. They're double acting, like baking powder, so it, it would react differently. You said let the dough rest overnight. Yeah. And if you put baking powder in and let it rest overnight, it's going to be half depleted because it'll react to the liquid in the in the dough. Yeah. I think you would have to get this ingredient, this leavener. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks You're so much. You're good to go. Thanks for calling. Thanks, thanks All right. Jay. All right. Thank you so much. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we hear tales from the life of a maitre d', including $100 tips, celebrity clientele, and threats from a mob boss. That's coming up after the break.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're heading back into the world of restaurants for a visit with a famous maitre d'. For more than 35 years, Michael Cechi Azulina has run front of house for many of New York's top restaurants, including the Water Club, the River Cafe, Raoul's, and Le Cuckoo. His memoir is called Your Table is Ready. Michael, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, I will start with a quote from your book. The restaurant industry is not just about truffles and sweetbreads. It's also about sex, drugs, and an array of misbehaviors perpetrated by both staff and guests. So I guess my question is, what is a restaurant? Uh, Is it a service? You know, is it performance art? It seems to be a lot more than I thought it was. I think it's an experience. I don't think you just go there for food. Um, You go to maybe... McDonald's for food, not for a great experience, I don't think, but I think to a restaurant where you're going to dine with a staff there that's there to accommodate you, it's about the experience. So this may have helped you in your career, I guess, but you grew up in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn in the 60s, and it turned out that a lot of your extended family were actually, in some cases, very directly connected to the mob. Yeah, quite a few. Turns out that one of them was Uncle Joe, right? Yeah. Well, you know, in in Italian families, you call extended friends aunts and uncles sometimes. And this one Uncle Joe worked with, well, not with my mother. My mother worked in a real estate office. And in summers, I would be taken there because we couldn't afford summer camp. But every Friday, this gentleman would come in and sit at a desk. And first he'd come in and he'd grab my cheek and he'd go, hey, Mikey, good to see you. And he'd give me a dollar bill. And he would take me around the corner to the 19th hole, which was a bar that also served lunch. And there'd be a five or six guys in fedoras come up. They'd kiss each other on the cheek. And I thought he was giving them dollar bills also. <laughs> Turned out I found out years later that Uncle Joe was actually Joe Colombo, the head of the Colombo crime family. Now, one of the things I found so interesting is when you worked in the church and um, you talked about how you worked the crowd. Could you explain that? Because I think that actually may have been good training for being a maitre d'. Well, you're talking about being an altar boy, yes? Yeah, altar boy. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, that was my first service job. You know, you serve mass, and you go in there, and you polish the cruets, and you lay out these tablecloths, and you knew that you were being watched in these beautiful white robes, and all the old ladies in there would see you and go, oh, my God, how cute he is and how cute. And you'd wind up, you know, helping them delivering groceries, and you'd make extra money for that. And it was you were being tipped right. to do these errands from your guests that came into the church. So I guess it was a beginning of the experience. So you eventually started in the, the restaurant business at La Russe. You've been in some great, amazing places, Water Club, River Cafe. So... Mm-hmm. The first time you you were hired at a pretty high-end restaurant, 
Was that a huge learning experience for you, or were you kind of ready for that? No, it, it was huge. It was huge. Look, I started at LaRousse because I wasn't making money at the theater next door, and I had to make a living, and the producing director said, well, we can't pay you, but I'll get you a waiting job. And when that restaurant closed, my next job was directly at the Water Club, which right. became fine dining. I had no idea about this. I didn't know it existed. And I guess the, the big moment in, in my career was when I got chosen to go over to the River Cafe as a captain, and I felt like I'd made it, that I, I was now in this world of fine dining of one of the best restaurants in the city. You were an aspiring actor for a long time. I assume there's a fair amount of acting that goes into being a captain or a maitre d'. It's a show. You know, the, you set up the dining room and the lights are up and everyone's running around and, you know, you're setting your stage and then it's time to open and the lights come down, the music comes up and these people walk in the door. It's theater. And the best captains or the best waiters, they're entertaining you to a certain degree. You know, you're, they're not just presenting your food to you and telling you what's in the soup that night. Someone I worked with was a singer and his waiting skills were terrible. But when his station was falling apart, people would get angry. He would just stop and break into song and people would love him and forget that he screwed up their order or didn't get them a drink. And one of the best captains was, was at the River Cafe and he looked like a movie star and he had this big smile and he ran around the dining room like Fred Astaire. And he was the most uh, sought after captain in the restaurant because it was the theater. You talk about in the book that there was a lot of drugs and a lot of sex in the restaurants you worked at. I, I missed all that. So, so I mean, I, I was I hanging out at some of these lucky. restaurants too. But like, where was the sex happening? Where were the drugs happening? Is this is this all back in the men's room or, or under the table or what? Look, back then we had a guy in the kitchen at the Water Club who was uh, the garde manger and regularly passing, you know, grams of coke through the pass to people buying it. Hmm. You know, guys would come in and get, and palm you a hundred dollar bill wrapped around a gram of coke. They would order bottles of champagne. Come have a glass with us. So. You're part of the party. You're part of the entertainment. Again, you're part of the experience. And in a restaurant, when you have easy access to alcohol and drugs and a lot of beautiful people running around, well, obviously, sex is going to happen. And did it? Yeah. I mean, restaurant bathrooms have been places where people had sex for years, and they still do. I assume that part of your success was the ability to size people up quickly to figure out how to give them a good evening, right? Yeah. And I think the great maitre d's, they know how to curate the dining room, know how to put this celebrity there next to that regular there who's not going to bother the celebrity. And, you know, you want to have a feeling that the entire room is full of that exact same energy from one end to the other. Now, look, a lot of times busy restaurants, you have one table available and that's what you're getting. But at the beginning of the night, when you know it's coming in, you try and lay it out exactly where people are going to go. So what's, what's the deal with reservations? Like I remember back in the 70s, I used to go to a restaurant in New Haven, Connecticut, and there were two lines. There was the line out the front, and then all these people in Cadillacs would park in the back of the restaurant and go in the back door. <laughs> and it's like they didn't wait for a table, you know. And I don't think many of them had a reservation. So It must have been my uncle. Yeah, it was right. It's like I wasn't – I was definitely not on the top of that list. So I, I assume that – Restaurants always keep at least a table or two open for a last-minute celebrity. How, how does that work? Yeah. you you got to keep a couple of tables up your sleeve. So if you get that last-minute call over and Meryl Streep is, you know, is around the corner, if you can help it, you're not going to say no to Meryl Streep because, one, because she's 
Meryl Streep, but also people like to see that Meryl Streep is eating in the same restaurant that they are. So you try to keep one or two tables open. Like at Le Cuckoo, I always had six or seven tables that only I could book. And I would hold those for regulars, celebrities, friends of the owner, friends of the chef, you know, the things that we, we needed to get in. So you've had some some pretty exciting evenings. A woman walks in and passes out. Uh, but there was a lot more to the story than that, right? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, it was one of those hot summer days in Manhattan, and it was LaRousse Restaurant on 42nd Street. And I'm setting up the dining room, polishing a glass. All of a sudden, the door burst open, and this woman comes in and collapses on the floor. I was like, oh, my God, I ran over. You know, you're going to get you something. It's just, she said, water, water. So I get her some water. And suddenly, about 20 people come rushing in the door, go over to this woman, and they lift her up, and suddenly they pull off a wig. And I realize it was Dustin Hoffman as Tootsie who was out filming on the street and wearing all this makeup and costumes and wigs that just had basically heat stroke and come into the restaurant for air conditioning water, collapsed, and and it was Dustin Hoffman, who came back a week later with his wife for dinner and to thank me. You know, that was the part of this story I just loved, that he came back for dinner and thanked you. I mean, yeah. and you also had a famous run-in with Fat Anthony of the Gotti family. <laughs> that didn't work out too well. Yeah, he was a, a mobster came in. I didn't know he was a mobster. A guy comes in restaurant late at night, goes to the bar, and he's drunk. The valet comes running in. Hey, this guy won't give me his car keys. He left his car in the middle of the, the door here. We've got to get him out of there. So I go to cut him off, and turns out the guy that I tried to cut off was part of the uh, Gotti crime family. And I insulted him. And he, on no uncertain terms, came up to me and said, I don't know who you are, but you tried not to serve me a drink and you disrespected me. And I'm going to take care of you for that. And it scared the daylights out of me because from growing up, I know these guys. You don't disrespect them. And eventually, we had to have a sit-down from two different families. A regular customer of mine was in one family with someone who was in the Gotti family just to pave things over. But for a good month, I was looking behind me every single day, waiting for someone to hit me in the head. Could have been worse, a lot worse. Yeah. Um, um. <laughs> have you ever thrown people out of a restaurant or have chefs at your restaurant told people not to come back? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not more, than, more than once. One, I threw someone out of a restaurant because he took his shirt off and <laughs> w- would not put the shirt back on. And I said, OK, you got to leave. I'm going to throw him out. And he sucker punched me and knocked me across a bunch of tables. Another guy was just horrible to the waiters. Awful, awful, awful. He would take his ketchup and mustard and dump it on the table and expect the service to clean it up. And finally, yeah, you get fed up and say, you know what, you got to go. You know, there's the ethos that the customer is always right, but it's not true. The customer deserves to be treated with as much respect and care and patience as possible. But when the behavior is egregiously bad, there's no reason for them to be in a restaurant. Could you describe the perfect evening for you? I mean, you know, you have to juggle 30 things at one time, but which reminds me a lot of, and you were an actor, of, of being an actor on a good night. What is a great night like for you? Yeah, a great night is when you're completely sold out and there's maybe 
10, 15 guests that you really, really like that are coming in. And the, the kitchen's on because you knew at the pre-shift meeting they made some specials that were great and then things just happen like clockwork. And you have time, if you're the maitre d', you have time to spend with those 10 or 15 people that are coming in. And what I've always done, if I, you know, I'll sit down for a little bit. I'll have, you know, a sip of a glass of wine with some people and I can really work the room and spend time. And not only with people I know, but people I don't know. Because I really, really love to get to know the guests. And sometimes people will strike up a conversation with you. Next thing you know, they're your next regulars. And that's, that's the perfect night for me. So I hear you're actually about to open a restaurant. Yeah. Um. <laughs> There's something missing in the world of restaurants you think you can add to? No, I can't add to it. Um, well, maybe I can add to it. And uh, hopefully this is being egotistical. But I am opening a restaurant. And I'm opening a restaurant not so much because I love restaurants, because I love, again, the experience of restaurants. I love going out to dinner and having a martini in a very comfortable restaurant where the light is right and I could, you know, have a great conversation with my wife, my family, my friends. And I love creating that environment. Mm. I love having people come in and be able to celebrate something or just come in for dinner and really stepping out of their life for an hour and a half or two hours and getting this experience where you're feeding them. I really feel that I'm not fulfilling my life without having that in my life. So I guess you just answered my first question, which is what is a restaurant? Uh, yeah. It's not just about the food. It's not just about the service. It's about no. the experience. Yeah. yeah. Look, we're social beings, you know. We need to see other people. We need to know that there's life going on around us. You know, restaurants provide that, and they're so important to the fabric of our lives. Michael, thanks so much, and the best of luck in your new venture. I appreciate that. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Christopher. That was Michael Checky Azalina, author of Your Table is Ready, Tales of a New York City Maitre D. Michael got started in the restaurant industry while pursuing an acting career, and that's, of course, true of a lot of actors. We talked to some of them, and they agree there's a lot of theater to be found in restaurant work. It was kind of like an audition. Like, when you go into an audition, you want to seem confident. You want to give the impression that, hey, you want to work with me, right? I want to work with you. In a lot of situations, we're becoming something or becoming what we think people need in that moment. And I think servers have to do that all the time. That was Adrian Walker, who made her Broadway debut in 2016 as Nala in The Lion King. But a year before that, her waitressing background came in handy when she was in a Super Bowl commercial for McDonald's. They implanted me into a McDonald's in downtown Chicago as an employee. All the cameras were hidden, and I was supposed to interact with customers and get them to pay with something other than money. So having so much experience interfacing with people, that made it easier. Some actors also told us they might be studying you to develop a character. Drew Talbert has 2 million followers on TikTok, where he does sketch comedy based on things that happened to him as a waiter. Folks, anything else I can bring you tonight? Yeah. The winning lottery ticket. <laughs> if I had that, you'd think I'd be working here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Gotta watch this one, huh? <laughs> For decades now, I'm, I'm listening to the same joke. Oh, we hated it, holding up the empty plate. You know? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, and every time the customer says it, you laugh. And as an actor, you 
try to do it in a believable way. So I just got pretty good at giving a really hearty laugh. I also studied this, the best way to do it, how you kind of go up on the laugh as you walk away to get away from a talkative person, you know? <laughs> okay, all right. And you just kind of head out. Another actor we talked to, Kimberly Doreen Burns, also found that waitressing was a big help to her theater career. She worked at a popular spot in Midtown Manhattan so she could be in the heart of the theater scene. She'll never forget the night that one couple sat down in her section. I served them for an hour and a half, you know, chicken, chardonnay, the whole thing. And finally, the gentleman at the table, he just asked me, he said, so you're an actor, you know, what are you working on now? And that's always like a horrifying question in New York because most of the time the answer is nothing. Can I get you anything else, sir, you know, for for dinner? But I decided to open up to this man and I said, well, I was supposed to be doing this show. I said I was very excited about it and it got canceled because the funding fell through. And after the conversation was over, he gave me his business card and he said, have your director give me a call. And then like a week later, I got an email from our director that this couple that I had met had come up with the money and the show was back on. So my waitressing job actually saved this magical production. That show was a theatrical adaptation of the movie Sideways. And Kimberly's character was a waitress. Coming up, more dinner theater. Geraldine DeRitter sits down for a Michelin-starred meal, but all she gets is a strange night of performance art. That's up after the break. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe Salmon is available ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. A few years ago, blogger Geraldine DeRitter splurged on a tasting menu at Bro's in Lecce, Italy. But it was not the meal she expected. There is something to be said about a truly disastrous meal. A meal forever indelible in your memory because it's so uniquely bad, it can only be deemed an achievement. The sort of meal where everyone involved was definitely trying to do something. It's just not entirely clear what. I'm not talking about a meal that's poorly cooked or a server who might be planning your murder. That sort of thing only happens in the fat lump of the bell curve of bad. I'm talking about the long tail stuff. The sort of meals that make you feel as though the fabric of reality is unraveling. This is how I've come to regard our dinner at Bros, Leche's only Michelin-starred restaurant. It wasn't dinner. It was dinner theater. We headed to the restaurant with high hopes. Eight of us in total led into a cement cell of a room. The decor had the chicness of an underground bunker where one would expect to be interrogated for the disappearance of an ambassador's child. What followed was a 27-course meal. It spanned four and a half hours and made me feel like I was a character in a Dickensian novel because there was nothing even close to an actual meal being served. Some courses were slivers of edible paper. Some were shot glasses of vinegar. We got 12 kinds of foam, something that I can only describe as an oyster loaf that tasted like Newark Airport, and a teaspoon of savory ice cream that was olive-flavored. I thought it was going to be pistachio. We kept waiting for someone to bring us anything that resembled dinner, until the exact moment when we realized it would never come. It was when our friend Lisa tried to order another bottle of wine. Would you like red or white? The server asked. What are we having for the main? The main, madam? We're about to move on to dessert. That was Geraldine DeRitter reading an excerpt from her essay, Bros Leche. We eat at the worst Michelin-starred restaurant ever. She joins us now to share more about this disastrous meal. Geraldine, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So when did you first get a hint that this was going to be a terrible experience? Was this before any of the food showed up or was this after a few courses? 
I mean, there was this bizarreness throughout. It felt almost like a pastiche of every send-up that you've ever heard about fine dining. The thing that I've found that people have likened the experience to is the film The Menu. One of the characters, I guess the chef approaches her and says, how are you enjoying the food? And she goes, what food? You haven't fed us. (laughs) And so it wasn't really until the meat molecules, (laughs) yeah, the meat droplet course, where it all fell apart. And what, what is a meat molecule? What is it? It was drops of gelée that were beef-flavored or maybe meat-flavored. They didn't actually describe what meat it was. But they, uh, they put the plates out, and then they came around, and they swirled a sauce on each of the plates. And I was like, oh, my gosh, table-side service. Okay, they are going to come by and place a protein on that sauce. And someone came by, and my hand to God, he had an eyedropper, <laughs> and he squeezed, I would say, between 10 and 14 drops onto the sauce, and he said, this has been infused with meat molecules. And then he left. One of the dishes I remember you wrote about was the rancid ricotta. Maybe you could just read what you, what you wrote about that. Yeah, oh boy, I'm going to have some flashbacks here, but okay. (laughs) On the rare occasion where they did offer an explanation for a dish, it did not help. These are made with rancid ricotta, the server said, a tiny fried cheese ball in front of each of us. I'm sorry, did you say rancid? You mean fermented? Aged? No, rancid. Okay, I said in Italian, but I think that something might be lost in translation, because it can't be rancido, he clarified. (laughs) He wasn't giving an inch. I know. I tried, too. I was like, come on, fermented, which actually it is. I think fermented is the way you would describe it. There was another one, unbelievably called The Chef's Kiss, that seemed like the real horror of the evening. Could you read your description of it? This is the dish, right? (laughs) Another course, a citrus foam, was served in a plaster cast of the chef's mouth. We weren't given utensils. We were told to lick it out of the chef's mouth in a scene that I'm pretty sure was stolen from an Eastern European horror film. And did you put your mouth up to it? I mean, there was no alternative, and I was so hungry. So at this point, yeah, I was, I was willing to do things for calories, Chris, right? Yeah. Things I'm not proud of. I was willing to make out yeah. with a ramekin of a mouth. The chef's mouth, yes. Which is such an exploration of ego that I could write an essay on that alone, that you are making your diners lick food out of your own mouth. So here you are. Having wasted is really an understatement. Four hours of your life and almost two thousand yes. dollars. So you're at the end of this trial. Yes. Then what happens? They had a stand up, and they said, "If you would please leave the restaurant." And I was like, "Yes, we're leaving." Thank you. Yes. Um, no, they walked us across the street to another studio, hmm. where they had a video of the the kitchen team 
playing extreme sports on a huge TV screen. I don't know why. (laughs) And there was a gentleman who was cutting a huge wedge of their vegan cheese. And I'm like, okay, we're going to get to eat that. And he proceeds to cut wafer-thin slices. And I'm like, oh, God. So... That was our fake exit. We thought that was our real exit. It was not. So then another hour and a half later, they hand us all balloons. What? Balloons with bros written on it. And they're like, oh, don't you want a Polaroid with the chef? I was like, what? And then we walked out and put all of our balloons into a dumpster, went back to the little place we had rented and talked about the absurdity of the evening. So your review of that night went viral. The chef, of course, took note of it, and he came out with a pretty odd statement in defense of his cooking. Maybe you could describe what he said. Yeah, so the chef sent a manifesto, and it had three pictures of men on horses. And the first one was just a stock art image, and it's a drawing of a man on a horse, Uh, The second one is a painting by Jacques-Louis David. It's quite famous. It's uh, Napoleon crossing the Alps. So it's this, you know, very grandiose painting of Napoleon riding a horse. And the third one is this sort of postmodern abstract painting of what is supposedly, it's entitled A Man on the Horse. I love, he says, and you, you quote this, but... What is art? What is food? What's a chef? What's a client? What is good taste? What looks beautiful? And then my favorite, what is a man on a horse? (laughs) Yeah, which um, I have been told by a former employee of the restaurant that he did not actually write that. That was a glowing response by someone who had eaten at the restaurant. But yeah, it was this absurdist response. It's one thing to have a big ego. We all know chefs who do. Yeah. But this goes not a step farther. This goes many steps farther where it it's into the realm of total absurdity. Yeah. So you thought about this a lot. Obviously, it's, it's occupied yeah. months of your life. So was this just <laughs> someone trying to, you know, do performance art married to food and just lost his or her way? Or do you think something else was going on here? I have thought about this a lot, and I don't know that I have a definitive answer, but I think that he is very far removed from one of the key elements of what it is to run a restaurant. His entire argument is that food is art, and I disagree with that in that I think food is a lot more complicated than art. I think that if you create a piece of art and someone hates it, then you as an artist have still succeeded, right, in some way because you've provoked a reaction. But if you are a chef, you not only have to incorporate artistic elements into your food, you have to make it appealing to the diner. That's a good point. So I think that... He has completely disregarded that fact. It seems to me that what's happened is diners, because he he has gotten some good reviews, diners Mm -hmm. are willing to go along with 
chefs who act like generals out of control who don't care about the diners and and keep getting good feedback. So they just want to see how far they can push it, right? You know, the emperor has no clothes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think a lot about the Japanese system of mentorship uh, in French, too, where there is perfection and artistry, but it's in the service of creating something that people will like, as you said, right? So I, I think food is art as long as the art is connected to creating the best food you can. Absolutely. And creating something that, you know, in the end will be consumed by someone and it'll make them happy. Geraldine, um, you're a great writer, really fun review, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me on the show. That was writer Geraldine DeRitter. Her blog is theeverywhereist.com. In response to DeRitter's viral blog post, the restaurant owner responded, What is art? What is food? What is a chef? And my favorite, what is a man on a horse? Food on a plate is not abstract. It tells the story of the craftsmanship of the cook who put it there. Eat it. Don't discuss it. Enjoy it. Don't fiddle-faddle with thoughts of Rembrandt or Verdi. Even one of the most celebrated chefs of all time, Paul Bocuse, famously viewed himself as blue-collar rather than as an elite artist. It's your lunch. It's your joy. It's not the Metropolitan. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping for the Milk Street store, and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.